0: Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I was having lunch with a friend, and he has a friend that has been a missionary in Zimbabwe for a number of years. You, most of you all know that Ellie, um, who was actually at another church this morning sharing what all God had done, has, had uh, did through her in Zimbabwe, you all know that that's where she had been uh, for the last two months but he was telling the story about this missionary friend that he has that he had shared with him and he said that one of the ways that he most often is able to evangelize and share the gospel is he has like this this like rugged Land Rover that's retrofitted with like a theater system in the back of it right so they'll they'll drive, and the roads over there, y'all, are just unimaginable. Like you can't even comprehend it. Like you're cruising down these roads, and he said you'll come, and these villages are just spread way out. So they would drive from village to village to village, and they would come into a village. They would go, and they would send out word, and people would gather around. He would flip up the back lid of this Land Rover, and people would watch the Jesus film in their native tongue. We said on one particular occasion, the Spirit of God just moved. And if you've ever seen that, if you've ever just witnessed what happens when just the Spirit of God just begins to awaken hearts and move in people, it's just the only way to describe it. It's the only way to explain it. And so he said there was this one particular day, and the Spirit of God just began to move through the sharing of this movie. And And many people came and professed faith in Christ. But there were two men particularly that at the end of the film seemed to be especially moved. They were not natives of that particular village. They had come from another village up and just happened to be in that village on that day. We know by providence, but it seemed random to them. And they're pleading through tears with uh, this missionary that he would come to their village. That he would come to their village and he would share the film. And he would let their people see the film and their parents see the film. But there was no road. There was only footpaths to get to Their village. And so he explained to them the thing, the explanation that he had had to give numerous times that there was no way for him to get the film to them because there was just no path. They were too secluded where they were. The missionary says that he really didn't give it much thought after that. He just continued on with his work and continued doing the things that he did. Three weeks later, he's in the same village and continuing to try to connect people and disciple people and do, do all those types of things. When two men approach him who were obviously exhausted, obviously filthy, worn out, and he says, It took me a second, but eventually I recognized who they were. It was the same two men that had come to him three weeks ago, pleading with him through tears that he bring this Jesus film to their people that they might hear the gospel. And he says that they're, they're, almost, they're so excited that you have to, he had to calm them down so that he could understand what they said. And he said what they told him was this. Three weeks ago, we went back to our village, and as we were walking back to our village, we talked about our conversation with you. And we knew that we had to get that film in our village. We had to get that message to our people. So we both took what we could, And for the last three weeks, we have been cutting a road through dozens of miles of jungle so that we might be able to get your Land Rover to our village to hear the gospel. With nothing but machetes, these two men cut a a road where a road did not exist. And the Land Rover went and revival fell on the village. This happened in just a couple years ago. We're not talking about something 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 100 years ago. We're talking about a couple years ago. Church family, why in the world would anybody do that? Why would anybody in the world put down their livelihood, put down their life for three weeks to cut personally, cut a road where a road did not exist? Painstaking work. because they had a vision, that vision, that vision of of this message coming into their village and being turned loose, that vision of seeing the Spirit of God awakening hearts in a way that they were incapable in and of themselves, and their vision had a name, and their vision had had souls, and their vision had hearts, their vision was their mom and their dad and their, their children. Their vision was the people that they had known all of their lives within their their village. They They weren't just thinking in the abstract. They were thinking about specific people that they knew needed the gospel. Specific people that they knew needed to hear the good news about Jesus. Why is it that two villagers in Zimbabwe are willing to cut miles of road through the middle of a jungle and we aren't willing to walk across our road? Could it be that we have no gospel vision? Could it be that our hearts are not broken for the people that live there? Could it be that we we aren't convinced that we have the hope that they need? If we have vision, if we are convinced, we will go, brothers and sisters. This morning we're going to begin what we'll be over the next six weeks talking about our vision and mission as a church. As we did last year, as we're going to do this year, as we're going to do next year. We're going to go back and look at our core values. Measuring them from God's word. Applying them to our lives. Calling ourselves to faithfulness that we might join in this battle. That we might be a part, used as a mighty tool in the hand of God for his glory. Would you turn with me this morning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 24. If you'll stand with me. As we read God's word together. Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 24. Paul writes. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body. That is the church. Of which I became a a minister according to the stewardship from God. That was given to me for you. he powerfully works within me. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Verse 24, the way it, up, uh, the way it opens up here, is absolutely crazy to us. It, it, it's insane to any worldly mind that might read it and might understand it or observe it. It's as crazy to us as the possibility of Two men cutting a road from here to Pell City so that they might hear the gospel in Pell City. Because what does Paul say? He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. If Paul said, I endure in my sufferings, we would understand and think, well, that's That's good. The gospel is allowing him to endure. The gospel is allowing him to persevere. But Paul does not say, I endure in my sufferings. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Seems almost fanatical to us, doesn't it? Almost beyond comprehension. That, that, That you would suffer the way that Paul has suffered. Paul is writing to the Colossians from prison, all right? We're not talking about sufferings out there somewhere. We're not talking about not getting, you know, Merry Christmas on your Starbucks cup suffering, all right? We're talking about bro is what riding from prison suffering, all right? We're talking about shipwreck suffering, being stoned suffering, all right? Suffering. And Paul says, though I'm in chains, I rejoice, Though I have been shipwrecked, I rejoice. Though I have been stoned, though I have been run out of town, though people hate me, though people endeavor to kill me, I rejoice in my sufferings. This is not just his message to the Colossians. If you read all of the epistles that Paul has written, not one time will you ever find a case in which Paul laments his suffering. Not one time. Not one time does Paul say, oh, I'm don't want to suffer, or I hate my suffering, or I'm sick of my suffering. Certainly there were days that Paul was sick of his suffering. Certainly there were days that Paul was tired of his suffering. But every time he sat down to write, every time he sat down in retrospect, every time he was able to measure his suffering in the context of what was happening, every single time he said, though I am weak, his grace is sufficient. Every time he said, I rejoice in my sufferings as I share in the cross. This was the message that he gave to Timothy in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, over and over and over, three or four times, Paul tells Timothy, share in the sufferings of the cross. Be, Timothy, a man of the cross. Embrace the cross. Embrace the suffering of this life because your suffering in this life is temporary investment in the next life. You see, Paul could rejoice in his suffering because Paul understood what his suffering was accomplishing. This is, I, notice what he says. He has an odd phrase here. He says, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church. I think there are two things in Paul's mind as he's rejoicing in his suffering, as he's speaking of filling up what is lacking in Christ's Affliction. What we can certainly do away with if we read all of Colossians and not one verse is to know that this is not speaking in any way to a deficiency in the atonement given to us by Jesus. This is not speaking in any way to a deficiency in Christ's suffering. No, Paul could rejoice in his sufferings because Paul understood that his sufferings made him more like Jesus and at the same time was used by God to build up his church. He rejoiced in his sufferings because his sufferings were working to make him mature and the kingdom known. This is what he's talking about when he's talking about, I fill up what was lacking. What he's saying is, now I am carrying the cross forward. I have taken up the cross myself, and I will press on with the cross. I will press on with the gospel. I will be a cross-clenching evangelist everywhere that I go. And any way that I have to suffer, any affliction that I have to endure, any sickness that I might incur, I gladly do it because I am holding to the cross as I go with the message. Paul understood any cross that he had to bear in this life only worked to increase the image of God in him and in the building and health and maturity of the church herself. He understood that his suffering was a tool in the hand of God. Brothers and sisters, your suffering is a tool in the hand of God. Your suffering is a tool in the hand of God. That God has, will use your suffering, is using your suffering, and is has used your suffering in a way that is going to make you more like Jesus and is going to make you more effective in helping the church be built. Some of you precious widows, I have watched as you have ministered to people who have become widows in our midst. God's using you to make the church stronger. God's using your suffering in a way that I am incapable of being used. I have watched as some of you who had great difficulty having children, have went beside other mothers who are grieving over not being able to have children, and you've ministered to them in a way that I could never minister to them. I've watched as you've lost children, and then you go and you minister to people that have lost children. I've watched as God has used you as an example in our community of, of how you can sustain and rejoice in times that rejoicing, rejoicing should be an impossibility. God uses our suffering as a light of his gospel in our world and in our community. Our suffering is a tool in his hand that he uses by his grace for his glory through our lives. Not one fraction of our suffering is without meaning. Not one fraction. But it's within this frame, it's within this understanding that Paul then gives us the vision for his ministry. It's kind of in this, he's kind of laying this framework, and he kind of bookends it this way, right? In verse 24, he's talking about, I rejoice in my sufferings. Verse 29, he talks about, "I, I press on, I labor, I toil with all of his power that is in me. So he's kind of bookending it this way, right? But right in the middle of it, Paul gives us what gets him out of bed in the morning. Paul gives us the vision that That the Father had given him for his ministry. What it is that drives him to press on in the midst of suffering. What it is that causes him to keep going and going and going. And being relentless in his going. Verse 28. He says, him we proclaim. That we, uh, him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. For this I toil. For this I suffer. For this I rejoice in my suffering. For this I endure. For this I press on. For this I keep going. I keep waking up. I keep enduring. I keep doing. For this I toil. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone, teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Can't you almost see that as Paul is writing it, he closes his eyes and is just imagining, envisioning what God is doing. Perhaps he is speaking it to someone that is taking this down for him. And I can almost imagine Paul escalating his tone, escalating his, 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 his voice. Perhaps if he's riding, riding more feverishly, as fast as he came, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. You see, what Paul is envisioning is the last day. The word mature here actually means perfect. And so there's two ways in which we think about the word mature. We think we're maturing, that's certainly in Paul's view, but we're maturing toward an end goal, ultimately when Christ returns, and we are made fully mature, made fully perfect. And so Paul is envisioning the last day. And he's envisioning that day in which Christ is seated upon his judgment seat. And person after person is being presented to him, presented to the judge, and Paul takes his ministry so personally that Paul personally sees him as the presenter of the bride to Christ. And he sees himself as being the one presenting all of these sinners redeemed, all of these blind now seeing. He sees himself as the one that's going to bring them and present them to Christ. In his mind are all the many journeys that he must have taken, all of the different churches that he had planted. All of the different places that he had preached. All of the tears that he had watched. All the baptisms that he had been a part of. All of the lives that have been transformed and flipped upside down. All of the communities that had experienced revival. All of the people that had endured persecution. All of them in the mind of Paul. And Paul says, I am laboring and I am working to present all of them to Christ in a worthily manner. You can imagine Paul bringing Timothy and presenting him to Jesus and saying, Jesus, your cross was worth it. Your cross was worth it. You can imagine him taking Epaphras and bringing him to Jesus and saying, Jesus. Jesus, your your death was not in vain. Your death was not in vain, bringing him Barnabas. Jesus, do you see what you have done? Do you see what you have accomplished? Do you see your bride and all of her splendor and all of her glory, all of them made perfect in you? It was the drive of his life. It was what got him out of bed in the morning. But what I find interesting is what Paul says. He says he he wants to present them as mature in Christ, right? So what drives Paul is not what drives much of modern Christianity. What drives Paul is not an expansive uh, Christian empire that just gets as big as possible. It's like 10 miles wide and an inch deep. That's not driving Paul, right? What does Paul say? He does not say, I labor and I toil and I proclaim so that I can present as many converts as possible. He does not say, for this I toil, that I might have as many confessions of faith that I could hear. And I could hear as many people professing Christ as possible. He does not say that I toil and I labor and I suffer and I rejoice in my suffering so that I might be able to to have as many people raise their hand and say that Jesus is Lord. He says, I do all of these things that I might present them as mature. As mature. That I might might present them as those that have grown in the gospel. that Those who have have taken hold of the gospel. The gospel taken hold of them that have pursued it and and sought Christ and went after Christ and loved Christ and want Christ. That Paul, even though they would eventually be made perfect, wanted to make them as perfect as possible before they got there. Because we all know. There are different levels of reward and glory. There are different standings before the Christ in glory. Now, none of us will be in sin and none of us will, will loathe our standing in heaven, but there are greater standings. Paul is saying, I want to present everyone with the greatest standing that I can do. I want to work and labor and press on that they might be as mature as possible in Christ. Brothers and sisters, how will you be presented? How will you be presented? On that day, when Christ is seated on his judgment seat, and you are brought before him, and you are presented to him as his bride, will you be presented as one that is apathetic? Will you be presented as one that is immature? Will you be presented as one that didn't really even know what to expect, even though he told you what to expect in his word? Will you be one that is biblically illiterate? Will you be one that only has a surface level understanding of the gospel? Will you be one that has no comprehension of the glory that you are about to behold? How will you be presented? And then even beyond that, who will you present? Who will you present? Paul understood that his whole life was built on him presenting people to Jesus. Presenting them as mature to Jesus. Have you made any disciples with your life? Have you made any disciples with your life? Are you pouring your life into anybody? Are you pouring your life into your children so that one day you can take your daughter, you can take my, my Gracie Kate or my Sarah, and I can present them and say, Jesus, your, your cross was worth it. Look at my daughters. Look at my girls. Are you investing the gospel into the people that you work with? Are you sowing the gospel into the f- hearts of your family? Are you sowing the gospel in the hearts of your classmates and your teammates? Are you sowing the gospel into their hearts that one day you might be able to present them to Christ? Can you even imagine the glory of that day? Can you even imagine? Paul was not okay. Paul was not did not find it sufficient to present to Christ an apathetic, immature, biblically illiterate bride. He wanted to present to Christ a bride that was mature in the gospel. So what is maturity? When we talk about being mature in Christ, when we talk about Paul presenting as mature, or us presenting as mature, or being presented as mature, what what are we talking about? We're not talking about that perfect sense. We're not talking about that, that, uh, that last day sense. We're talking about the sanctification, right? We're talking about maturing, a process of, of growing in maturity. So what does that look like? I think the, the hint is in what he says in Christ and Christ in us. In verse 27, you'll notice that he says, which is Christ in you? Verse 28, he says um, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what Paul has in his mind is he has our union with Christ in mind. That we, because of the gospel, are so a part of Christ, and Christ is now so a part of us that we can say that Christ is in us and we are in Christ. That we are the branch and Christ, are, we are the branch, and Christ is the vine, but we are so interconnected that you really don't know where the vine stops and the branch begins. That we are in Christ, Christ is in us so much so that everything that Christ does is what we do, and what we do is what Christ does. So here's what I think Paul is saying. Paul's understanding of Christian maturity would have been that the union that we have with Christ being fully manifested in our lives that if Christ is in us and we are in Christ should we not look like Christ should we not do like Christ and be like Christ and go like Christ that the essence of Christian maturity is to be as close to Jesus and as much like Jesus as we can possibly be that is Christian maturity See, Christian maturity is not like many other faiths and many many of our understandings of Christian maturity, our legalistic kind of framework that we're working from. Christian maturity is not us memorizing as much Bible and working as hard as we can possibly work so that one day we're strong enough to stand on our own and go out on our own. No, Christian maturity is the opposite of that. Christian maturity is... Learning the word of God so much so that you realize your weakness even more. And you realize even more than you realize the day that you were saved that you cannot do this alone. And so you begin to lean on Christ more and more and more. What Paul is saying is he presents everyone matures. he's presenting people that have learned to lean into their union with Christ as much as possible. Not on themselves. You find Christians that are carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, you find Christians that are immature. You find Christians that are continually under the levels of stress. And look, all of us are there, right? All of these are hints of our Christian immaturity. Because as we grow in our maturity in Christ, we grow in our understanding that we don't have to carry this stuff. We grow in our understanding that that Christ is reigning over all of these things. Like in my ministry, one of my some of my most treasured moments have, being, have been at the bedside of dying saints. The bedside, and I know that sounds odd and that sounds weird, but it's true. I can think of this one lady in my previous church that I was sitting at her bedside, and she was just hours from dying. Her family and her children all gathered around, weeping and sobbing, and she's here with the biggest smile that I've ever seen on a human being. I mean, I'm talking about all her pearly whites is showing. And she had a calm. And some of you have witnessed this. She had a calm over her spirit that was indescribable. And I said, how, how are you at such peace? She said, Cody, I learned a, I learned a long time ago this isn't in my control. And I learned a long time ago that I'm dying, and that's okay because I'm going to a place where you don't die anymore. You talk to Miss Aura. Talk to Miss Aura. I can't tell you how many times I have to say, Miss Aura, stop saying that because she comes up to me and she says, "I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I just want to go into glory. I, there's nothing holding me back here on this earth. I just want to go into glory." And even as I say it now, it grieves my heart because I love that woman so much. But the weight of the world is no longer on her shoulders. The stress of life is gone. That's Christian maturity, brothers and sisters. That's what we're growing in. We're growing in the understanding of our weakness and his strength. Ask Miss what who God is. You know what she says every single time without fail? God is everything to me. Everything to me. It's how I wake up in the morning. It's how I go to bed at night. It's how I get through every waking second without my dead son and dead husband. It's how I survive without my sister that has passed. God is everything to me. I lean into him. I go to him. I hold to him. That is Christian maturity, brothers and sisters. That is what Paul is beckoning us to. That is what Paul is aiming to present to Christ Christians who are clinging to the cross understanding the glory of God and the power of God and the might of God in all of his splendor that's the big picture that's the big picture how do we get there I think there's a smaller picture within our text that kind of gives us on how we're going to get there right I think there's, there's kind of three ways or three, three levels of, of maturity, if you will, that you can, you can uh, see in our text. That you kind of start on level one and then you go to level three. But when you get to level three, you're doing all at the same time, okay? So go with me here. Level one of Christian maturity is knowing. Knowing. Maturity is much more than knowing. But it is not less than knowing. Notice the emphasis on this. Verse twenty. Five, what does he say at the end of it? To make the word of God fully what? Known. To make the word of God fully known. That people would know the word of God. Verse 28. What does he say? Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why do you teach? You teach so that it might be known. So that it might be comprehended. We divide evangelism and discipleship. But there is no division in the New Testament. Discipleship and evangelism are one and the same. You cannot become a follower of Jesus unless you know some things. And you know some things because of the discipleship of somebody else. You can't come to faith in Christ Jesus if you don't know about the cross. You don't know about the resurrection. And you don't know about placing your faith in him. And you don't know about your sin. You don't know those things. You can't come become a Christian. No. You have to obtain knowledge. You have, to, you have to desire to have Christ fully known in your own mind, the gospel fully known in your own mind, the gospel fully known in your own in your own pursuit of Christ. One of the things that troubles me that I often hear Christians saying now is that I'm okay with just the simple things. I don't worry about, I don't worry about all of that, the doctrine things, and I don't worry about all that theology things. That's for you, preacher. I don't really wrap myself up in that. If you now even ask somebody, how do you grow a church, one of the first things they will tell you is to uh, let all of that go away from the pulpit because that's going to kill your church. Brothers and sisters, what does it say about us that we are content with our knowledge of God? What does it say about us? What does it say about us that we, are, we have glimpsed the glory of God, that we have glimpsed the gospel, the gospel that has redeemed us as sinners, that has awakened our minds and awakened our eyes? What does it say about us if we have been awakened and then say we want to be awakened no more? What does it say about us if we say that, God, we have seen your glory? We know that there are angels surrounding you right now saying, holy, holy, holy. But, God, we are content with what we have. What does it say about us when the Bible tells us that God wants us to have as much of Him as we are willing to take? That 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 God wants us to know Him. That if we seek Him, we will find Him. That if we go after Him, we will have Him. That if we pursue Him, He will give it to us. And we don't pursue. What does it say about us when Jesus says that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness when we are not hungry and thirsty? Brothers and sisters, we need to know the gospel, and we need to keep going and going and going. We need to press deeper and further into the mind shaft of God's glory so that we have in mind the gold and the diamonds and the riches that are there. Brothers and sisters, let us press on. Let us press on toward maturity. You think you know something about the gospel. You think you know something about God and all of his attributes and all of his glory. You don't know anything You don't know anything. For all eternity you will be searching his riches. For all eternity you will be searching his holiness. For all eternity you will be searching his glory. And you will never find the end of it. And you will never grow bored of it. And you will never grow tired of it. It will be a new treasure, a new gift every single day. Should we not begin today? Brothers and sisters, I want the word of God unleashed in this body. I want the word of God unleashed in your house. I want the word of God unleashed in your heart. I want you to live day in and day out in worship. I want you to parent your kids through the word of God. I want you to lead your family through the word of God. I want to flip our community upside down with the word of God. We cannot if we do not know it. We will not back down, and we will not go shallow. We will press deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of God's glory. Right now, our goal is over the next three years to have every single member of Iron City Baptist Church read through the Bible in a year. We've got about 90 people doing that right now as a church family, but we want all of you. And as we were talking about these goals, I was thinking back to the first time that I read all the way through the Bible together all the way through the Bible, um, myself. And it brought tears to my eyes. Because I remember it being like a veil lifted from my eyes. When I realized Leviticus is not irrelevant. Like, all of that's pointing to Jesus. Like, the law of God is not pointing, all of that is pointing to Jesus. And I remember just the the word of God just coming to life for me. I remember realizing that God's breath really is in every single word. I so badly want you to experience that. I so badly want you to know that kind of joy. So level one, knowing. Level two, applying. Applying. I get that from two things that he says. In verse 28 he says, warning everyone. And then he says, and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So the word warning and wisdom are the ones that I kind of have in my mind when I'm thinking about applying. When, when Paul says a warning, this is also might be translated in your Bible as admonishing. Okay, What he has in mind is he has in mind that he's walking with a, a group of believers that are familiar with the word of God. That he's been teaching the word of God to. They may not know all of it, but they know, they know at least the, the teachings of the apostles at the time. And they, they, he sees in their life that they're walking in a way that is incongruent with the scriptures. That they're walking in a way that they know is disobedient. That they're walking in a way that they know is sinful. And so when he says warning, what he is saying is I am rebuking them with gentleness as with the gentleness of the spirit, but in the strength of the word to come back on track. That I'm holding them accountable for what they are doing. And so he's saying, I am helping them to apply the word to their lives. I'm helping them apply the word to their hearts. I'm helping them become who Christ envisions them to be. That we're doing this together, right? And so I am teaching it to them, but then I'm I'm holding them accountable to it, helping helping to press it deeply into their hearts. He also says, I'm teaching with all wisdom, right? What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge applied, isn't it? Isn't that what wisdom is? Wisdom is knowledge applied. I heard wisdom defined this way. This is my favorite definition of wisdom. I tried this on Megan, and she didn't think it was as clever as I did, but I like it. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato belongs to the fruit family. Wisdom is knowing that a tomato does not belong in a fruit salad. Right? Are y'all with me? Huh? Y'all don't think it's good either. (laughs) It's not mine. I read it somewhere. I can't remember where I read it, so you're not disagreeing with me. But it's applying what you know. It's living in the real world with the truth that you have and applying it in a way that makes a difference in your life, makes a difference in what you're doing. This is what Paul is saying. It's not enough just to know it. It's not enough just to have the gospel. It's not enough just to memorize the word of God. We must apply it to our lives. There's a lot of biblical knowledge in here. A lot of biblical knowledge. But if you're like me, the difficulty is not obtaining the knowledge, the difficulty is in applying it to my life and living it out. You all know that one of the passions that I've had since I came as your pastor is that we would no longer live as guilt-driven Christians. That we wouldn't do this because we feel guilty or do that because we feel guilty, but that we would do it because we are motivated by the delight and grace that we have. Right? But let me just set you free. Let's just get real about guilt for a second for those of us in Christ. The reason that many of us are living lives perpetually filled with guilt it's because we are living lives that are perpetually disobedient to the Word of God. We have the knowledge of God's Word. We have an understanding of God's Word, but no application of God's Word to our lives. And because we know what God would have us to do, and we know what the Spirit is prompting us to do, and we continually and perpetually reject God's Word and reject God's Spirit and do not do it, we are living in this season, this life of fear, I mean of, of guilt. Can you imagine what it would be like if you woke up in the morning and did everything that you knew God would have for you to do that day? That's not oppressive the way the world wants you to think that's oppressive. The world wants us to think that doing these things that God would have us to do according to his Bible is oppressive. Those things are not oppressive. They set you free. They set you free. The truth sets you free when you apply it. When you apply it. You could wake up and open up the word of God and, and seek the face of God. But you feel guilty because you neglect your time with God. If when the Spirit prompts you that you should teach in a Sunday school class or you should, you should share the gospel with a coworker, you feel guilty because you know you should teach and you're not teaching. You know you should share the gospel but you're not sharing the gospel. What if we did this really crazy thing and we just did that stuff? What if we just did that stuff? Like, What if we, just, what if we were that church? What if we were that just crazy, fanatical, out there, out there church that says, hey, you know what we're going to try? We're going to try to actually do some of this stuff. Let's try to actually be some of this stuff. Can you imagine how that would change our community? Can you imagine how different our church would be? Can you imagine how much more satisfying our worship would be? Can you imagine how much more filled with joy our lives would be? Can you imagine how much fuller our lungs could be with air when we took a breath? Brothers and sisters, let's do it. Let's be that church. So you have knowing. You have applying. And then the final thing I think we see in Paul is reinvesting. Reinvesting. This is the theme of Paul's ministry. Look at verse 25, what he says. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So here's here's how Paul understands his ministry. Paul understands his ministry. Paul understands his life as a stewardship. That is, that it is given to him by God for his management, for his reinvestment, right? It's the parable of the talents. If somebody comes to you and gives you $10 million dollars, Well, you're a fool if you go and you just dig a hole and bury $10 million. You're given $10 million. You should reinvest $10 million and turn it into $20 million. Or invest it in the kingdom and, you know, that's tenfold, so that's even greater. How many of us have been entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel? How many of us have been given the truth of God's word? How many of us have been saved, brought into God's kingdom, and now we just sit on what we have? No. Paul says, it has been entrusted to me so that I might entrust it to you so that you might entrust it to the next generation. That we are given this investment by the Spirit so that we might reinvest it in those that come after us. See, the gospel was always meant to spread. The gospel was always meant to multiply. That's what verses 26 and 27 are talking about. The Messiah was promised to the Jews, right? But the mystery was that it was going to always be spread to the Gentiles. That God always planned to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. That Paul's stewardship was not just to his people, it was beyond his people. It was to the ends of the earth. We are this generation's gospel stewards. Do you realize that? You are the gospel steward for your family of this generation. It doesn't matter how godly or ungodly your mama and daddy were. What will matter for your children is how godly or ungodly you are. It does not matter how godly or ungodly the pastors of the past were at Iron City Baptist Church. Only how godly or ungodly we are. It does not matter what happened yesterday. If we drop the ball today, brothers and sisters, we have been handed the torch of the gospel. Let us run faithfully this race and hand it to the next generation better than we found it. See, churches that that don't multiply die. Churches that don't reinvest the gospel die. Every single church is one generation away from extinction. Every single one. This is a matter of life and death. If we will take what we have, if we will take the deposit that has been given to us, and we will reinvest it into our children, and we will reinvest it into our communities, into our communities, so that they might come to the gospel, so that they might have hope in Christ, so that they might be made well, We've got to build a church that multiplies. Got to. We've got to be a church that multiplies. Everything that we do has to be with the aim of multiplying. We need dads multiplying themselves with their sons. We need moms multiplying themselves with their daughters. We need bosses multiplying themselves with their co with their employees. We need, we need uh, teachers multiplying themselves with their students teammates multiplying themselves among their teammates we need to be multiplying people church would you just dream with me for a second would you just dream with me for a second can't you imagine pulling up to iron city at nine o'clock in the morning and having to have worship service then can't you see it Can't you see us having two or three services, multiplying them so that we increase our capacity, multiplying them so that we can reach out to more people and proclaim the gospel to more people, so that we can spread the gospel? Can't you you see us? We have these things right now called D groups, And so it's like three to five guys or three to five girls. I have one. We're meeting at 6 o'clock on on, uh, Thursday mornings. And we're just reading through the word together and investing in one another's lives and talking about what's going down, and, and it's life changing. Can you imagine if we had 300 people in those D groups? Right now, I think we have 30. What if we had 300? What, what if then it went to 600? What if we began inviting people that you work with? What if you had a group of guys that you were having breakfast with and you had a friend at work that would be intimidated to come into church because you say, hey, I got a group of guys, we eat a biscuit and just read the Bible. Would you be interested in just kind of reading the Bible with us? Can you imagine what that could do? Can you imagine the people that are looking for friendship that could find it here in the gospel and be transformed? Can you imagine? going all the way up and down Highway 9 to all the small forgotten towns of rural Alabama and putting a campus that's just like this one there so that we can go and we can preach the gospel. Preach the gospel in Ashland and Lionville. Preach it in Center or in Wadawi. Let our vision go beyond us. Let 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 our vision go beyond what's comfortable to us. Let our vision go beyond these cushioned red chairs. Let it go to the far ends of our community. Let's multiply ourselves. Let's build our church in a way that is reproducible. Can you imagine us being a part of church plants in Salt Lake City? And church plants in Kentucky? We're already doing that. Can you imagine us, God using us, a little bitty church in rural Alabama, God using us to plant churches in Zimbabwe and in Swaziland and in Bukatsu in South Africa? God can do it. God wants to do it. God desires to do it. He will use us. Brothers and sisters, we must mature so that we can multiply. The vision of our church is to produce maturing and multiplying disciples to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, our vision has a face. And our vision has names. And our vision has souls too. This morning, in Mountain View, a young boy woke up late, went and fixed a bowl of cereal and watched cartoons, having no idea that he needed the forgiveness of God. In Grandview, a mom woke up, appearing to have everything and wondering why she feels like she has nothing. In Pine Hill, a dad, wanting to be a good dad, planned to take his family on a picnic in the woods to spend time with them, all the while leading them toward their own condemnation. Our vision has names. Our vision has faces. We must mature, and we must multiply for their sake. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father.